I'd earned my emergency adjuster's license after helping out with several back-to-back -back hurricanes in Pensacola. When Katrina hit, I was deployed to cover three different parishes in New Orleans. Booking a hotel in town wasn't possible for obvious reasons, so I rented a house with three other adjusters in Theodore, Alabama. The house sat at the end of a rural cul-de-sac, and while all three of us were there, nothing unusual happened. Before long, however, my housemates got their respective assignments and were deployed to different areas. I wound up staying in the house alone. The commute was brutal. It was dark when I set out every morning and dark by the time I got home. At the end of my 16 to 18 hour shifts, I'd practically collapsed from exhaustion. When I finally had a few days off, I spent them filing reports in my pajamas. One night, scouring through mountains of paperwork, I nodded off in front of the TV. I'd kept it on for background noise. I woke up just in time to see whatever was playing cut to commercial. In that brief moment of blackness before the commercial block started, I could clearly see, reflected on the screen, a shadowy figure crossing the room behind me. I bolted up and spun around. Nothing. I was alone. Adrenaline pumping, I rushed through the house, checking all the doors and windows. I scoured every inch of that place. There was no way for someone to have gotten in. Of course, I was freaked out, but eventually managed to convince myself I'd just been seeing things. I was beyond tired, after all. Later that night, as I lay in bed, drifting off, I felt a presence in the room with me, filling that space between sleep and awake. Conscious enough to be concerned, I nonetheless opted to write the feeling off and declined to open my eyes. The next moment, I felt a hand on the back of my head, violently pushing my face into the pillow. I struggled to break free of its grip and wrenched myself out of bed. There was no one in the room but me. Now, I like to think I don't scare easily, but within minutes, I was fully packed and headed to Biloxi in the dead of night. The next few weeks of couch surfing while I waited for lodging to open up certainly took their toll, but they were nothing compared to the prospect of staying one more night alone in that house. Creeping along the hall at midnight uh -huh. Shadows dancing in the corner of your eye Voices floating from downstairs after twilight Big note Specters moaning from the attic in reply Everyone has a spooky story, something they don't discuss but life is a haunted oratory when you're like us So sit tight, turn on the light Then curl up with some ghoulish history Something a little dark and dreary Serve with a heaping dose of eerie Raise those Moscow mules and clink them Whoopsies! Ghost Hi, I'm Jamie Markey and I'm Michael Tatum. And, oh, that's your turn. Sorry. <laughs> ah, damn it. Why do I never get it right? And this... <laughs> School intentions. <laughs> it adds flavor. It adds flavor. It it's, does. It's it does real. We're real people, Jamie, not voice actors. Right. We're that's not why perfect. We <laughs> if I could For count. all of you who just thought we were... Because I'm sure there's none no you. none of none you. None of you think um, we're perfect. I hope not. I hope our listeners are more discerning than that. 
Right. Uh, I was just thinking about um, all the auditions I get where the specs and the specs are like short for specifics. It's what the client's looking for in the voice and the delivery. They almost always fucking say nowadays, always, like nine times out of 10, they'll say like, we want real people, not actors. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always it's like, like no, fuck yourselves. Actors are real people. God damn it. I yeah. know what you mean, but there's got to be a better way to put it. But, but anyway. also, no, no, they don't. Yeah, no, they don't. They're like, just we want, we don't know how to write copy that sounds like a real person, so we need a really good actor. <laughs> right. Yeah. Could you say this copy that says Sunday, Sunday, Sunday as naturally and, yeah. and normal yeah. as possible? Coming at you, Sunday Sunday, 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 Sunday. No, no, no. Could you get to it bigger? Sunday. <laughs> Every time okay. I've auditioned for something, it's like, not announcery. And then I don't get it. And then later I hear the uh, spot on the radio and whoever they got is saying it extremely announcery. And I'm like, right. Yeah, I just don't. Yeah. I I ignore the specs on half of those these days. I'm like, y'all don't know what y'all want. Y'all don't right. know. Y'all don't fucking know. That's Fuck out of here with that shit. I wish we could audition for clients that way. Like, um, the product I'm looking to represent really knows itself and is just <laughs> just knows how to doesn't have to really mm-hmm. tout its its qualities. It just kind of lets itself its accomplishments speak for itself. <laughs> I wish I would like that. That's what I want. You don't have to do too much with this one, you know? You just It's just, just we're looking for real products, not just not just a label. Right. If the product could be less announcery, I'm really looking for a product that is just real. Oh my god. Fucking this business. This business is so crazy sometimes. I love it. It really is. And it's funny. It really, really is. And I know I'm off on a tangent just because we're we're talking a lot today about recording. Ooh. As it so happens, because it's a big part of my story. Um, speaking of stories, I should say uh, thank you oh, yeah. to Reddit user Adele AM for that submit. Well, not submission, that story that I found on <laughs> that Ghost story stories. being available online. <laughs> uh, well, they submitted it to the web, and uh, I, I decided to, it was a good story. Good story. Thank you. Thank you. And um, God, Meg, can you imagine being good uh, story an emergency adjuster? That goes to like sites where hurricanes have devastated. I mean, it's crazy. I was in Biloxi just about a maybe a couple of years ago for a convention, and um, it was a really nice convention. Everyone was really sweet, but like just driving down the coastline, Katrina was like what 15, 16 years ago, and like this place, there are patches, there are areas along the coast, at least what I saw in Biloxi, that still have not yeah. recovered all these years well, later. Well, they keep getting hit too. Yeah, right. It's so even right now. Sad. There's um. Delta, and that it, the mm-hmm, one that mm-hmm. that turned from like a tropical storm to uh, her, uh, what is it called? A category four. Yeah. Yeah. And, like it went from a two to four in half an hour. It's just. And it's, so everybody be careful. 2020, That's everybody. In the path of that one. Jesus Christ. Man, and speaking of which, we're not doing any news of the weird because the regular news is so fucking weird, right? <laughs> yes, I tried. I really sincerely tried to collect some stories, but they're all fucking depressing, and none of them can yeah. compete for weirdness of the shit that's making headlines right now. Like, yeah. what? I really, This really feels like the season finale. <laughs> To America, <laughs> right? <laughs> it really feels like, uh, like just the, we've got a few more episodes and we'll be done with this experiment called right. America. <laughs> it's and then it's terrifying. Knows? And now, yeah, you know, I think my favorite story that I've seen is that <laughs> there was a um, um, zoo, I think, and so they decided the, the animals were getting bored, so they decided to entertain. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like, to entertain the animals. Are you talking about the African gray put... parrots that were like teaching each other to cuss? 
No, that's no, different. No, there's another. Oh, my God. See, animals yeah, all over the world are just prepping to be at the top of the food chain now once we're all done. Right. <laughs> so what they, what they did was they put the dolphin, like, uh, where the dolphins were kept, they put the sloths over by it. So the sloths <laughs> were, like, watching the dolphins, and the dolphins were fascinated with the sloths, and the dolphins started chirping at the sloths, and the sloths, who are usually very quiet, started chirping back, and so they were kind of playing with each other. That was my favorite story. That's, <laughs> I was like, that's I what I needed. My favorite story, which is trending right now, is how gay men all over the internet are taking back are, are commandeering the Proud Boys hashtag, which yes. I think is fucking lovely. Is the so best good. thing is to take these asshole white supremacists and just be like, oh, you're gay too? That's awesome. Thank you. Just so nothing. Fun. You know nothing's going to make their fucking gorge rise like that. I, I think know. it's great. Uh, it's too gorge easy. rise too is such easy. a strange term to use here. Um, but <laughs> I will say, I posted, um, <laughs> I posted, um, Wainwright Jacobs and Alastair Hemlock. You did. And I in there loved it. I was like, they're some of my favorite Proud Boys. Someone posted a, a picture of Brandon and I shortly after the proposal uh-huh. in Paris and like hashtag Proud Boy. Because at first Brandon was like, what the fuck is this? And I was like, no, no, no. What are they? They're call- are they calling us white supremacists? Like, I didn't know about the trend. And I was right. like, what the fuck are they? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, no. Sh- sh- okay. Nice. Yeah. It's uh. kind of like when... Um, K, uh, uh, K-pop fans will overtake a, trend, a hashtag and be like, okay, so we're going to make this like racist hashtag or really like God idiotic hashtag and just co-opt it. And so everything will be um, K-pop bands. And so <laughs> anyway. Virtuous uh, trolls. Virtuous That's one trolls. of my favorite things. Okay. Uh, um, yeah, but other than that, the news is just fucking weird. It's just too weird to com- – like there is no weird news now. News is just weird. Well, and also it's kind of scary to dig in to what the news is right now because (laughs) what else are you going to find? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know? Uh-huh. God. But it is Halloween time. We're in October. It's our month. It's exciting. Yeah. Um, It's a lot going on this month. And what we're focused, we have different themes for our episodes this month. We do. And today's theme, you can tell from our title, is cryptids. Our title is the, the cryptid keeper, for obvious reasons. Uh, <laughs> you have to go that route. So we're talking cryptids today. I Michael love it. Michael specifically has a long story. I do, and it's one about... of my it's one of my absolute favorites, and I can't wait to get yes. to it. But I also can't wait to hear yours because you're yeah, doing so you're doing mine, like a little buffet of choices, which I that's always right. love. I am going with um, a, a series yes. of different cryptids tonight because. You know, we've heard about the the standards, right? We've got Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. We've got a lot of, you know, we've talked about a lot here. Yes. Um. So I thought fucking, I'd get into some that maybe you don't you don't know. I fucking love cryptids. I yeah. just love cryptid cryptids. Like almost more than I like ghosts. And I love ghosts, but cryptids are yeah. my fucking jam. I don't know All why. Right. I don't believe in half of them, but the half I do believe in keeps me going. All right. All right. Well, let's see if you know about some of these. Oh yes. Okay. So my sources. There's an article on Atlas Obscura by Eric Grundhauser. I think that's how you say it. Grundhauser. Grundhauser. Then Wikipedia and the Cryptid Wiki, which is very informative as well. Yes, yes. So first off, we have talked about this one before, but I wanted to bring it up again because it's a good one. The Rougarou. Remember the Rougarou? Yeah. uh, It's from Louisiana. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, God, yes. Remind me. Long story short... 
It's a man who transforms into an animal much like a werewolf, mm. right? It's got a long history that stems from France. Back in the 16th century, the Lugaru, which it's sometimes referred to as, as well, um, and the spelling can differ depending upon how many X's you want to put in there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, the Lugaru was blamed for a lot of shit. Kids disappearing, houses ransacked, animals mysteriously dying, all of that kind of stuff. It was the Lugaru. Obviously, you've been attacked by the Lugaru. Uh, that history obviously. traveled to Louisiana because, of course, we know France was the one that had mm -hmm. Louisiana, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and the Rougarou came with it. This particular cryptid lives in the swamps of Louisiana and surrounding swamps. Um, one legend says it hunts down Catholics who don't follow the rules of Lent, which seems like a very specific Catholic-based rumor. <laughs> <laughs> but another says that the Rougarou is under a 101-day curse. So it is somebody who has been cursed. Mm. So for 101 days, they're going to be afflicted with the Rougarou curse. Unless the affected person can transfer the curse to another person. Their curse usually comes from a local witch, often a voodoo priestess. You can protect yourself from this creature or being cursed by pacing 13 objects in your front door. Because, this is my favorite part, the Rougarou cannot count over 12. Once they become the Rougarou, they cannot count over 12 because the most important things are the full moon, and um, and uh, the and what was the other thing? And midnight, okay. right? So it's twelve hours, twelve days, twelve hours. <laughs> so they so can't count after twelve. They I mean, can't, can't count, count over thirteen. Wow. So if you just put thirteen things, thirteen you know pennies, something like that, on your front porch, you'll be good to go. From the root group, right? It's like so God that's... damn it! I can't like I can't count. It's so it has OCD, but not mm -hmm. strong arithmetic skills. Right. That's yeah. that's that's a curse. Right. If there's more than twelve, it's just like, I don't know what that means. I've got to leave here, which <laughs> does, I understand. Does, that's does, kind of my that's, not gonna, that's mean, my attitude as well. That's how I feel now. But it's if there's more than four people nearby, <laughs> I gotta this leave. Is too much. <laughs> so in other I'm words, leaving. the Rougarou is like really good at social distancing. It seems. Yes, very good. <laughs> well, Unless good it's gonna them. eat you. <laughs> so. And now it only eats too. people that's not that aren't wearing a mask. I'm like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but it is very much a punishing type of of thing, right? You, it attacks you as a creature. punishment yeah. for your actions. Yeah, Interesting. that's the idea. Hmm. Hmm. Um, then you, and there's lots of stories of it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you have number two, the Lizard Man of Scape or Swamp, or oh, the yeah. Lizard Man of Lee County. Yep, and that's I, in South Carolina. I know. Do you know this one? one? I do. I do. Okay. So on July 14th, 1988, the Lee County Sheriff's Office investigated a report of a car damaged overnight while parked at a home um, in the area of Brownstown outside Bishopville, South Carolina, on the edges of Scape or Swamp. The car reportedly had tooth marks and scratches with hair and muddy footprints left behind. Sheriff Liston Truesdale... True is in his name, for fuck's sake. <laughs> what a great Noted. name. Liston, Liston <laughs> Truesdale. Truesdale. Um, he noted that this was the start of various claims that eventually coalesced into a story about a lizard man in the swamp. Prompted by the news of the vehicle damage, 17-year-old local Christopher Davis reported to the sheriff that his car was damaged by a creature he described as green, wet-like, about seven feet tall, and had three fingers, red eyes, 
skin like a lizard, snake like scales, two weeks before. According to Davis, <sighs> he was driving home from work, uh, from working the night shift at a fast food restaurant when his, when his car got a flat tire. After fixing it, he saw a creature walking towards him. Davis got in his car and began to drive, but the creature was soon on top of his car. Uh-huh. He applied his brakes, causing the creature to roll off the car, giving Davis enough time to escape. Coverage by the newspapers and media resulted in an increased attention to for his claims. Local businesses began selling Lizard Man t-shirts, and the local <laughs> chamber of commerce encouraged the media attention as good for the community. I mean, you're not wrong, but like, what, what a weird mindset to be like, there's a crazy fucking creature out there that may kill us. I mean, I might, might as well make a buck off it. Right. Capitalism. <laughs> right. Um, in 2008... CNN mentioned the Lizard Man legend in a story about a couple in Bishopsville, or Bishopville, South Carolina, who reported damage to their vehicle, including blood traces. Car damage is a real big theme. <laughs> Good luck. The blood traces, Good luck on their insurance claim on that, too, by the way. It's yeah. like, no, nah, it's going to be force majeure. Uh, we, we're not, we don't cover yeah. lizard men. Yeah, that's a force of nature. We're not going to. The blood traces were subsequently found to be from a domestic dog, though the local sheriff suggested it might have been a coyote or a wolf. In 2015, a local television station featured photos and videos claimed to be Lizard Man, allegedly taken by unidentified individuals. In August 2017, the South Carolina Emergency Management Division sent a humorous tweet regarding possible paranormal activity during the solar eclipse that passed over the area, hinting that people of Lee and Sumter counties should remain vigilant for sightings of the lizard man. Ooh, I love it. He's so, still around. Which is fun. I love that it's tongue-in-cheek. But these kinds of stories always make me think about the aftermath of, like, some sort of supernatural episode, like the television show Supernatural. Yeah. Like, what happens in the community when <laughs> something like that happens, like, and it becomes, like, urban legend or myth or something like that? Um, okay. And for so all we know, that. it may just be, like, a really tall dude with a really, really bad case of, like, um, I don't know. In Bentigo or something. You know, yeah. it may, or eczema. I don't know. Eczema, don't that's know. what I was thinking, eczema, yeah. Um, then you have, okay, have you heard of this one? Probably. The Loveland <laughs> Frogman. No. <gasps> okay. Oh, this Jamie, you've got a Loveland, new one. Loveland, yes. Ohio. So this is Ohio for folklore. Okay. The Loveland Frog or Loveland frog man or loveland lizard is a legendary humanoid frog described as standing roughly four feet tall that's big (laughs) according to various legends the creature was first sighted in 1955 there are three different versions of that story that differ only slightly from each other they start the same way with a businessman or a traveling salesman driving along an unnamed road late at night the stories start to diverge at this point in one story, the driver was heading out of the Branch Hill neighborhood when he spotted three figures stood erect on their hind legs along the side of the road, each three to four feet in height with leathery skin and frog faces. In the other two versions of the story, the creatures creatures were spotted, spotted under or over one of the poorly lit bridges going over the Little Miami River. The story tells of the businessman watching the figures seem to talk for a while until one of the creatures held a wand over its head and fired a spray of sparks, startling the businessman into fleeing the scene. Uh Then, in 1972, (laughs) 
The Loveland frog legend gained renewed attention when a Loveland police officer reported to a colleague that he had seen an animal consistent with descriptions of the frogman. After purported sighting in 2016, the second officer called the news station, or a news station, to report that he had shot and killed the same creature some weeks after the 1972 incident and had identified it as a large iguana that was missing its tail. That's a pretty fucking large iguana. A large iguana that was standing on its hind legs that was missing its tail, waving a wand above its head that shot sparks out, apparently. <laughs> that was, I mean, that I mean, was years earlier before everything, the 1950s. In the 50s, everything but... fits except for the size. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've right. seen iguanas like with sparklers. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and they can get real fucking big, though. They, they really can. Yeah, they, I guess they can. But like three feet tall or four feet right. tall, that's... Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but then also, what's it doing in Ohio? Iguanas right? are not native to the no, iguanas. Are, they don't do well in areas that get that fucking cold. When I so I have a friend who used to live in um, St. John, mm-hmm. and uh, went to visit her, and on her back the the back area of her property, it was just like kind of a hill, grassy hill kind of area. Yeah. In the afternoon, iguanas would cover they would drape off the trees and just be sunning themselves in the grass everywhere this is in st john's island st john yeah Yeah. (laughs) it was like i don't think i could walk out in the middle of that and they're not aggressive or anything but no in in places like the keys in florida like um they're so prevalent they're they have uh like pest uh, pest control companies will advertise themselves as being as like the people you call to deal with, you know, infestations of them because they're like they're like yeah. squirrels there are to us. It's like they're everywhere. Yeah. They're just hanging out in trees. They're and everywhere. I remember when I was vacationing in Key West several years ago and you know, I just walked everywhere because it's a beautiful little island and it's easy to traverse on foot. And I swear to God, I'd like I'd turn a corner, like duck under a tree limb and turn around and be like, oh, there's a fucking iguana right there. Look at me eye to eye. Hello. And they're so yeah. pretty. How big were they? Um, and they were pretty big. I'd say like the size, I'd say maybe four feet long was the biggest one I saw. Uh, with a tail? With, with, a ta- with, with a tail. And I'm just judging like it, you know, maybe it was really only two feet and my mind was like, it's four feet. I, I don't the know. The ones in St. Thomas were huge. Yeah. They were three yeah, to four feet. That's yeah, where my, my brother and sister-in-law, uh, um, they honeymooned in the Virgin Islands and came back with like video of these iguanas that look like fucking Komodo dragons. Yes. They were huge. Yeah. So I could see it. Being that, but I don't but know why Ohio? it would be in Ohio. And how does it survive in Ohio during the winter? Yeah. Maybe, maybe once it, do it, well it in loses the cold. its tail, it's totally fine. <laughs> the tail is its source of strength. The tail of its, or, yeah. or the Or it's the source of its limitation. It's like, without my tail, I can live in any climate. I can, yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a weird power. Uh, but in May, this is my favorite part. In May of 2014, the Loveland frog legend was made into a musical <laughs> titled Hot Damn, It's the Loveland Frog. <laughs> I don't know this musical. But I fucking love that it's a thing. Hot that's Damn, pretty... It's the Loveland Frog. That's yeah. hilarious. So that's just makes the me think of the, frog. It makes me think of the frog uh, god in um, Pan's Labyrinth. That she has to, like, mm-hmm. get the, the key from or yeah. whatever. I'm like, that's, yeah. Frog, uh, frog. Uh, uh. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, well, I, yeah. That's a new one for me. Yeah. How about, I'm sure you've heard the Beast of Bay Road. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yes. Okay. Beast of Bray Road in Elkhorn, Wisconsin. The Beast of Bray Road, which is a great um, warm-up. For your mouth, Beast of Bray Road. Beast, Beast of, of Bray, Bray Road. Road. Sounds like uh, <laughs> it, sounds like it ought to have a really good open-faced sandwich named after it at the local deli. Yeah, I bet it does. I bet it does. It's gotta. <laughs> there's gotta be someone. Um, it's also known as the Bray Road Beast, 
That's well, it's also like the a good biggest burger. Bray Road Beast. The Bray Road Beast with bacon and bits <laughs> of blue cheese. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's huge. And if you eat it in a certain amount of time, then you like get it for free, plus a free dessert. Yeah, for the rest and of the later year, you'll be making your own Beast of Bray Road. Ding ding. Uh, <laughs> um, that's a poop joke. Okay. So this creature. <laughs> <laughs> was reported in 1936 and the 1990s on a rural road outside Elkhorn, Wisconsin. The same label has been applied to other sightings from southern Wisconsin and northern Illinois. The Beast of Bray Road is described by purported witnesses, including a former assistant district attorney of Walworth County, in several ways. As a bear-like creature, as a hairy biped resembling Bigfoot, and as an unusually large, intelligent werewolf-like creature able to walk on its hind legs. It's two to four feet tall on all fours, seven feet tall on its hind legs, and its weight comes in around 400 to 700 pounds. It's also said that its fur is a brown-gray color resembling a dog or a bear. Mm -hmm. Several witnesses reported the beast had made contact with their vehicles, leaving long scratch marks on doors of one vehicle and the trunk of another vehicle who also made contact with the creature. One witness, while driving on Bray Road on a foggy night, reported hitting something crossing the road, then exited their vehicle to determine what they had hit and reported that a large, wolf-like creature with red eyes chased her back into her car, then left claw Ooh. marks in the real, rear passenger door. This is like Twilight Zone shit. <laughs> I love that whatever it is is still very much a dog because it's chasing cars, and it can't yeah, resist right? chasing cars. The spirit of I it is still... I love it. It's like, I'm still, I'm in the dog family because I can't, I can't resist chasing a goddamn car. Right. <laughs> Um, Sightings have also been reported during daylight hours with several witnesses stating they had observed an unusually large wolf-like creature running on all fours through cornfields. One witness stated they observed the creature in pursuit of a deer. Unusually large animal tracks resembled coyote tracks, resembling coyote tracks, have also been discovered in the area of Bray Road, leading many researchers in the, into the sightings to conclude the creature is an unusually large coyote or wolf-coyote hybrid. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know why a hybrid would make it be a coyote instead of a coyote, but that's what happened. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> strange to me. And Wolf, why coyote and how would it or like, coyote? I guess I mean I I'm I'm no geneticist or or expert in animal husbandry, but I don't understand how just combining a small animal with a slightly larger animal makes a larger animal. It, right. You know, it's like it's I, I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. I mean, but it, mutations happen. Mutations it's happen true. all the time. It, could it be. sounds like a classic werewolf to me. It, it does sound like that right? to me as well. So in my yeah. in my movie, it's the district mm -hmm. attorney. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> he was cursed. Well, or there's just a fa uh, a family of werewolves. Out God, there. I want that to be true. I want werewolves what, to be real. I in don't. My movie, it's just they're normal people during, you know, the day, but some nights. But at night, they transform. They gotta... That's why, and they're trying to kill deer. They're trying to do the right thing, but you know. But occasionally okay. they they chase cars because you know dogs. That's because they can't help themselves. I read it so... And maybe they have a game out of it, right? How I, many cars I think, can you I think scratch? the moral here is when you're driving in the country on some back road that's potentially haunted by some dog-like beast, just bring a laser pointer with you. And that's like, true. And you can just get it to go away by, like, chasing it off. Like, you know what I mean? Because, like, our dog, Gus, like, holy shit, a laser pointer, he becomes right, done. the spryest fucking creature you've ever seen. <laughs> He's yeah. like, sleeps all day, but the minute he knows that laser pointer is on, he's like, he's ready to go. he'll chase it like a cat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was, it made me think of something. Oh, um, 
nope, it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> Whatever thought that was has exited the building. That is. My I'm thing. sorry, I derailed it's you. It's right. It's okay. It's okay. It was about that. It was about the laser, the laser pointer. pointer. But anyway, um, <laughs> animal mutilations have also been reported in the area around Bray Road with animal remains, including deer and livestock, partially mm. eaten with specific organs removed from the animal carcasses. Another witness reported driving down Bray Road late one night and observed an unusually large wolf-like creature eating an animal which had been hit by a car on the side of the road. Ew. The creature reportedly ran into the woods as the eyewitnesses approached it in their vehicle. <clears throat> Hmm. That's what, oh, now I know what I was going to say. So we were talking on the Discord a little bit about deer whistles. Oh, yeah. Maybe yeah. maybe they need, to, if you don't know what a deer whistle is, it's really inexpensive. You can get them to go on your car, but it, um, when you drive, the wind goes through it and it's a high pitch, like whistling sound that you can't hear, but the animals in the woods next to the highways can and they mm-hmm. will get, they'll run away from it. Yeah. So you're less likely to have a deer jump in front of your car and total it which is a thing that will happen if you hit a deer with your car. <laughs> so yep. um, one of the things that we've experienced driving back from, you know, dropping the girls off if we're on I-20, if it's uh, <laughs> in season for the deer, oh my mating God. season and new baby season, they will be right up at the road, uh-huh. just right there eating and whatever. And it makes me so anxious. So the deer whistles will help scare them away. And I wonder if that works for werewolves as well. <clears throat> I don't know. It may call them to your car because it's like... Chow time. I don't know. Oh. I, I This makes me, it, put me, it puts me in mind of a story that my mother and father experienced while driving on the road uh, in East Texas years before I was born. And um, I guess my mom was asleep in the passenger seat. It was really late at night and they were coming down some stretch of really dark, inky road in the middle of the night from uh, my grandparents, the little vacation farm they had that I've mentioned before. Mm-hmm. They were coming from a visit there and for whatever reason it was late or, or you know, well past sundown and up the road uh somebody had um like a herd or I'm not sure that's the word a group of horses that had broken out of their pen and had just and were just standing in the road but they were all coal black and so my father who was driving a fucking mustang at the time and a car guy so he's like racing down the road like just hit like three or four of these horses head on i mean totaled his car almost killed my mother he had to like instinctively my mother had to just like, or my my dad had to grab her head as it came up with the force of the brakes and like mm. push her head down because like one of the horses like came through the fucking windshield and like Jeez. into so the passenger to, seat. Just to get this straight, your dad hit horses with a Mustang. <laughs> you so know, just for make sure somehow, I understand I've known that, that story for years, and that part of it has always escaped me. I didn't realize. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the first thing I was like, he's driving a Mustang? I was like, oh my God, yeah. I think it was a Mustang. Yeah, it had to have been a Mustang. It was this old Mustang because he still had pictures of it. And that's, that's the thing wow. that totaled it. And it, might, it almost killed my mom. Um, so yeah, driving down these country roads yeah. where there's no natural light or it's you know, shrouded by trees. So there's even when the moon's out, it's dark. Like it's, it's yeah, really that's easy. Like when, uh, my, yeah, I was going to see my parents and they still lived out in uh, Mustang, Oklahoma. And I was taking this... <laughs> there's there's uh, too many points of connection in our know, stories today. I what the fuck? I can't make that up. It's true. Um, so I was taking a side road that kind of goes back to to Mustang. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a curve from the highway, I think from I-40 or something like 44, something like that. Yeah. Big curve. And it's a, there's a lot of lanes, but you can go quickly heading out into the country. And this deer came out of fucking nowhere 
ran in front of me, got scared because it was like, oh, there's a car, slid on the ground. Oh, no. And spun around and on its own volition. I was just like, I didn't even fucking do anything to you. <laughs> and then it, it ran away. But I came, I had to swerve and I came really close to hitting it. I was like, that would have. Oh, my God. That would have taken my whole car out, and that not to mention the the deer. Right. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Driving, it was terrifying. Yeah. Animals are. Oof, they don't know. They don't know. They don't know what to do. They don't know. They don't. They're not used to dealing with cars, and they're like, oh, cool. Oh, fuck a car. What do I do? I'll just stand yeah. there. You know, it's insane. <sighs> but I I believe that it, the beast of Bray Road is very reasonably possible. I mean, because yeah. if I were a werewolf or if I were just some creature that was like one of my own kind, like that's a perfect place to hunt because all the roadkill. So you don't even have to, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to hunt per se. I feel like if se, I was a werewolf, scared. I wouldn't be like that. I don't want to eat roadkill. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's a conscientious but werewolf that doesn't want to, doesn't want to so. murder. So I feel if you're a like, werewolf, you, you'd get over the raw meat thing real quick. I think that's part of the yeah, deal. Yeah, I feel like as a werewolf, that has to be part of it because you can't be like... <laughs> Can I get this thing medium? Like a, <laughs> like a vegetarian werewolf. You don't hear about those. No. Um, they don't last very they're because they don't they don't do any damage. <laughs> it's weird. Uh, it was a werewolf sighting. I'm be at, a werewolf a candy sighting werewolf. at the <laughs> You I never read about werewolf sightings at the farmers market. <laughs> yeah. A, a donut where maybe, a bakery. Maybe a were rabbit. Bakery based. Yeah. Um okay. Oh my God. So next for something different, we have old Ned. Old Ned. In Lake Utopia, sounds... New Brunswick. Have you ever heard of it? I don't. It sounds familiar. Okay. Le- local legend has it that the lake is inhabited by a sea monster known as the Lake Utopia Lake Monster or Old Ned. <laughs> the story <laughs> like, goes that's a mouthful. That Let's long... just call him Ned. No. Let's just call him <laughs> Ned. Uh, <laughs> the story goes that long ago, two Maliseet natives, I hope I'm saying that, that name right, Maliseet Natives were canoeing on the lake when suddenly the monster appeared and chased them from one end to the other. Since the arrival of Europeans to the area in the late 18th century, the story has continued with new sightings being reported every three to five years. As noted in research by cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman, it has a decidedly long and bulky cetacean cetacean appearance, a whale-like appearance. Cetacean? I feel like that's what it should be. Um, Your guess is as good as mine. Yeah. Uh, and may be representative of an unknown group of animals that travel back and forth between Lake Utopia and the Atlantic in routine cycles related to breeding and feeding. It's also been reported as red, pink, or black. Let's hmm. hear a few of those sightings, hmm. shall we? Hmm. Yes, please. Back, the first one was back in 1867. Sawmill workers claimed to see something 30 feet long and 10 feet wide thrashing in the lake with similar reports over the following days. 1872, natives describe a terrifying monster with a large head and bloody jaws following their canoes. 1982, Sherman Hatt says he and his family saw a large creature that looked like a submarine coming out of the water with spray on both sides. It was about 10 feet long and um, put them in the thought, made them think it was a whale. Mm, mm, mm. 1996. Roger and Lois Wilcox were canoeing on the lake when they saw ripples break the placid surface 100 meters away from them. It was heading toward Cannonball Island, a common monster sighting spot. Wilcox reports the monster as being 40 to 50 feet long, undulating upward, not sideways. Mm. So that's uh, old Ned. Oh, old Ned. 
old then, gray. I'm thinking old one, gray. <laughs> I'm old gray. Yeah. This one surprised me. I don't think I'd ever heard of this one either, but I bet you have. All right. The Lake Worth Monster. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah. yeah okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. I know all about this one. Okay. So this is the Lake Worth, Texas, which uh-huh. is why... Yeah. Have you ever been uh, out there, t- by the way? Have you ever been out to where this happened? Because I have. Uh, no. When I first heard about this years ago, I, I when I lived in Arlington, which is not that far from where Lake Worth is, it's easier driving distance than from here, uh, went out there and explored it. That place is still there, still kind of unspoiled yeah. by suburban so, development. What it is, is it's a tex- Texan folklore. The Lake Worth monster is a legendary creature said to inhabit Lake Worth at the Fort Worth Nature Center and Refuge just outside of Fort Worth. So that's not very far from where we are. No. Uh, the creature is often described as part man, part goat, with scales <laughs> and long clawed fingers. Reports of sightings by local citizens of a half man, half goat with fur and scales in July 1969 led to the belief that the mysterious creature lived in Lake Worth. Newspapers reported the alleged sightings, including one of which the monster landed on a man's car after jumping out of a tree, and another in which it threw an automobile tire at a group of people. Mm-hmm. Newspapers mm-hmm. also published a photograph purportedly taken of the creature by Alan Plaster, and locals began driving out to the lake late at night to get a look at it. Local p- police investigated the claims but found no evidence of the monster in Lake Worth or the Greer Island area. According to one reporter, the Goatman legend was spread via summer camp stories where camp counselors told children to listen carefully and you'll hear his cry on clear nights like tonight. (laughs) In a later interview, Alan Plaster, the one who took the photograph, commented on the photo described as a man-sized white furball Mm. that he took while driving past the Nature Center in 1969. Plaster characterized the sighting as a prank, saying whatever it was, it wanted to be seen. Yeah. Since reports of the monster ceased when the school resumed, or back when when uh, schools resumed, many suspected, many suspected, I can say words, many suspected the incidents <laughs> were pranks carried out by high school students. In 2005, a reporter at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram received an anonymous letter from someone claiming to be one of three high school classmates who in the summer of 1969, decided to go out to Lake Worth and scare people using a tinfoil mask. In 2009, Fort Worth, Texas Magazine published a report about an unidentified man who said that he had been a perpetrator of the tire-throwing incident. Mm -hmm. Cryptozoologist blogger Craig Woolheater said he believes the Lake Worth monster is an undiscovered, uncatalogued primate species that walks on two legs. So I have opinions about this. Yeah, I want to know. I... I think it's a little column A, a little column B. Um, it's the Lake Worth monster remains, uh, to my knowledge, one of the one of the best instances of multiple witnesses seeing the same thing at the same time from different vantage points. The tire throwing incident, which happened on the 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 side of the lake, was like this little ravine that comes down to the shoreline. Um, it was just an old tire, like an old, uh, like uh, big tire though, like a truck tire, not just some, you know, not a small tire by any means. And these, like something like I think twelve people were around the lake that day and saw it. Now, granted, they saw it at a distance, but what they all agreed on is that the thing, the creature, was like having this fit, and it threw this fucking tire damn near across the water uh, to the other side, where where a good portion of the witnesses were standing. And so uh, that's the one detail that gets me. If it was just some kids um that's i can't throw a fucking tire and i'm a big dude and and you know and so i don't know now i feel like maybe there might have been something going on there might have been a weird creature or or 
maybe an unusually strong feral human <laughs> was out yeah. there and once people get wind of that then the kids are going to go out there and fuck along you know and be and like oh, we're gonna but be real for a second only a teenager and i say this with love to all of our young listeners only a fucking teenager could think you're fooling anybody with a foil mask. Like, yeah. only a teenager could be like, yeah, we scared them so bad. I'm like, bitch, I know what a fucking foil mask looks like. And I <laughs> I know what a fucking fursuit looks like, too. Like, I'm not, I don't care what, I mean, this was only in the fucking 60s and 70s. Like, we're not, we weren't. Yeah, but still, we you had the lady, the the girl that you went to high school trick you in the with the and your friend with the ghost and the uh, they didn't they thing. didn't trick me they tricked they tricked this this girl I wouldn't I would I just knew about it but I wasn't part of that yeah. trick but but to be fair that ruse was a lot more clever than someone That's wandering true. around the lake with a fucking foil cap on like I you know that one was a little I don't know I mean it's possible but I feel like I feel like whoever thinks it was a hoax or has come forward saying they perpetrated the hoax is kind of like the crop circles thing I think some crop circles are made by people but the really complicated ones the real complicated ones that they've done research on and found that there might they might even prove like a new untested uh theorem think that's not a fucking person that's a prankster trying yeah. to take credit for shit that because they think they're clever as hell and i think right. that happens well, I mean, a lot in these whenever cases whenever it's an unidentified person <clears throat> that always makes me think mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. was it just you guys don't want to say that it happened i, I think do, probably something happened they didn't know about, and then, yeah, like you said, and then, then the, the kids were like, let's the pretend to be that and freak there, people yeah. out. And then if yeah. the sightings went down, it's because the kids weren't out there anymore to even see it, let alone perpetrate yeah. a hoax. So, And I, I do believe the photographer when he says he, because I've seen that picture is pretty easy to find, and it's pretty obviously like someone wearing what looks like a fucking shag rug to me. Like, it does not look like a real creature. And it also doesn't fit the description of being scaly and looking like a goat. It just looks like someone dressed like a cloud. Um, yeah. For Halloween, and it's really lame. And I think, and I think his assessment is right. I think people out there sort of. I mean, maybe people going out there to prank is what scared it off. Yeah. <laughs> I don't maybe. know. Or maybe it was maybe. just passing through. I don't know. But I, I believe it. I, I knew someone who, uh, whose father had been one of the witnesses, and and uh, she always told me, like, I'm mean, of course this is second, third hand, but she always told me that her father was like, yeah, that that shit was not a dude in a suit. Yeah. Like what we saw, the tire, the tire flinging, like. That person couldn't have thrown it that far. That's crazy. So, yeah. Oh, I love it. Okay, okay. So. Have you heard of the big muddy monster from Murfreesboro, Illinois? Uh, that's another one. Wow, you're you're doing right. great today. This I haven't good. heard of half of these. Um, Murfreesboro, Illinois, near Southern Illinois University, Carbondale, has repeated sightings and smellings <laughs> of the big muddy monster. Many believe it may be related to, if not the same as, the uh, Crave Coeur monster sighted near the St. Louis suburbs. Mm-hmm. This is an animal often likened to Sasquatch in size and appearance, but with a distinct skunky smell. Uh. Those who believe the two cryptids are the same surmise that the animal swam down the big muddy river in Murfreesboro to the Mississippi River and thence north to Missouri River by which it swam to a bend in the river near Crave Coeur. Um, the other thing is that it could just be a Bigfoot that is in the river a lot, the muddy river, and so it appears could muddy. Be. Could be, could yeah. be. That's a quick one. But then, I lo- then we I, have... I love it. It sounds like it might be a Gorgotham, like, you know, the shit demons from Dogma. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's terrifying uh, The Ohio Grassman. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. This one's short, too. Uh, Cuyahoga Valley National Park has a giant hominid called the Grassman. 
And these suckers have three toes for some reason. We know this because the footprints that have been found at the park. Often referred to as the Eastern Bigfoot, the grassman is reportedly a seven-foot-tall, 300-pound hominid. It's said that the Ohio grassmen have a more human-like appearance and are shorter than the classic Bigfoot. Mm. So it's a it's a wee, it's a wee Bigfoot. It's a it's a wee. Still big. It's a wee. It's a large foot. It's a <laughs> it's a moderate foot. Yeah, seven feet tall. It's still pretty big. It's an, inter- um, it's an intermediate foot. Yeah, maybe this is the big foot, and then the other ones are giant foot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> you gotta um, wonder if there's a ranking system among them. Yeah, like, it's not a Sasquatch. It's a Shack Squatch. <laughs> He's got very large feet as well. Uh, <laughs> white River Monster. Oh, yes. Do you know this one? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is a good one. Um, that's Newport, Arkansas. The White River Monster is a large creature reportedly first spotted off the banks of the White River near Newport in northeastern Arkansas. Although reported in the press as a monster, it's reported to be deeply loved by the neighborhood residents near this portion of the White River, <laughs> and the monster is referred to locally as whitey <laughs> but in a good way uh <laughs> sightings of the monster <laughs> uh they began back in 1915 on july 1st of that year an owner of a plantation near the river saw the monster he reported it having gray skin and being as white as a car but the length of three cars they tried building a rope net to catch it but many ran out so they never finished the net in the first week of 1937, recreational fishermen noticed that they were finding it hard to land many fish. And then the creature was spotted again. Bramlett Bateman, which is a real name, <laughs> a nearby plantation owner, later confirmed the sighting, describing it as having the skin of an elephant four or five feet wide by 12 feet long with the face of a catfish. It was resting on the surface of the water. Feeling the creature was a threat to the crops, he intended to blow up the eddy where the creature was spotted with TNT. That's overkill. That's that was his just solution. M- major overkill. Why the fuck not, right? Um, how uh, He couldn't do that, though, because the area authorities were like, you're going to have to get our permission to do that, and it. we're not going to give you our permission to it's do like that. It's like a section of that old metaphor. When all you have is TNT, every problem looks like a demolition job. That's right. And so they wouldn't let him do it. Um, A minor media sensation resulted in visitors from across the nation, some bringing cameras, explosives, and a machine gun. And when no more sightings were made, even by a deep-sea diver, Bateman was thought to have created a hoax, despite over 100 confirmed sightings recorded at that time. It sounds like a manatee. It sounds like a, a, a manatee. A manatee, yeah. That said, the White River Monster was sighted yet again in the summer of 1971. Hmm. That year, eyewitnesses who encountered the creature described it as the size of a boxcar with a bone protruding from its forehead. Ah, now it, it sounds like a narwhal. Was, <laughs> a narwhal, right? It looked as if the thing was peeling all over, but it was a smooth type of skin or flesh, said one, and it made strange noises that sounded like the combination of a cow's moo and a horse's neigh. <laughs> so weird. Uh, I love random, it. I like to think it's a narwhal. Mutant narwhal, yeah. Freshwater yeah, mutant uh, narwhal. Yeah, it's adjusted to the temperature, I guess, change or whatever. Because yeah. narwhals are in cold, cold, cold water, aren't they? Uh, yeah, and deep, yeah. deep sea yeah. cold water, right? 
That's I odd. Think so. It's very odd. We don't know enough about narwhals. <laughs> I didn't even know they existed until about 10 years ago. I know they swim, ago. they're swimming in the ocean. That's all I know. <laughs> um, other accounts of the White River Monster described three-toed tracks, 14 inches in length, on Towhead Island leading down to the river through a path of bent trees and crushed bushes. <laughs> See, now it just 19- sounds like a Scooby-Doo villain. Right. In 1973, the Arkansas State Legislature signed into law a bill by State Senator Robert Harvey creating the White River Monster Refuge along the White River. It is illegal to harm the monster inside the refuge. Like, stop (laughs) fucking bringing dynamite. No more dynamite. <laughs> that one's the White River Monster. That's good. <laughs> that's one of my favorite ones. I like that's that's one of the more unique ones. Yeah. Um, I think because it's just whenever there's that kind of detail about like oh because no one very rarely do people mention having seen like a Bigfoot or something and also mention it looked like it had a skin problem. Yeah. Um There is one account of a Bigfoot uh, that apparently like had some kind of mange. Mange. Um, yeah. Yeah. I got really close to this the witness's car and was like hairless and toothless. And was like, but otherwise fit the description. It had a, li- it had patchy hair, but mostly it was hairless. It's kind of it terrifying. Sounds like the, the bad hormone monster from Big Mouth. <laughs> okay, we also have couldn't not include Oklahoma. Of course, the Oklahoma octopus. Uh, this is complete news to me. I had never heard of it as well. I put boomer sooner bitches so that I can put it in there. Okay. <laughs> this is one of the most ridiculous ones, I think. But here we go. Oh of course God. it is. I'm, uh, I'm I am one of the most ridiculous ones as well. So <laughs> and I'm real. So I, guess. I mean, it's Oklahoma. It's Oklahoma. So it makes sense. Um, <laughs> it's Oklahoma octopus. It has a Bible in each of its arms. <laughs> <laughs> it has a Bible in four arms and a gun in two of them. And, yeah. uh, an, an orange flag in the other two, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, um, the Oklahoma octopus is a mysterious creature generally said to inhabit three lakes in Oklahoma. Lake Thunderbird, Lake Ulaga, and Lake Tenkiller, where it attacks and kills unsuspecting swimmers. According to legend and rumor, this freshwater demon measures the size of a horse and resembles an octopus with long tentacles and leathery reddish-brown skin. Skeptics question how an octopus, an ocean creature, could survive in freshwater lakes, but it is easy to believe that such a creature would be a fearsome predator. The giant Pacific oct- octopus, for example, has tentacles mm-hmm. that each boast the strength of, t- of a 200-pound man and p- a powerful beak that it uses to kill prey. Mm-hmm. Although no physical evidence exists in the case of the Oklahoma octopus, <clears throat> many point... <laughs> Many point to the high mortality rate and large number of unexplained drownings in the Oklahoma lakes as a clear sign of its presence. I would say maybe you look into drinking and boating, but you know, it's maybe because unless they got like suction marks on their arms, like what do you, yeah, like, what, what do you, what do you think? I mean, water can kill on its own, guys. It doesn't need much help. Yeah. Now there have been numerous reported sightings, though. So. The I mean, if there is going to be pointed... anything fucked up in the water, it's going to be in an Oklahoma lake. Let's just yeah, that water... so get that out there. I don't love, uh, I've, I struggle with dark water and <sighs> not being able to see through it, which is <laughs> growing would... up in Oklahoma, that's all the water you, in Oklahoma. You, and similar in Texas, but Oklahoma Oklahoma rivers and water, uh, uh, open water is worse. I mean, yeah. you would have hated the open water dive class I had to take to get my I scuba suit. I would have hated it. Was it was so terrifying. My grandparents... Fucking anything could have lived down there and we wouldn't see it. Yeah. 
No. And and so my grandparents lived, um, they had this really awesome house right off the shore of Lake Texoma mm-hmm. when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Really cool. Um, so I kind of grew up on the lake, which was fine, except we always had to beware of the, the water moccasins. Mm-hmm. And uh. there was a certain area over by um, their house that kind of went into like this little alcove thing. And they were always over there. So uh. you couldn't even, like, you couldn't just uh. go swimming uh. because there were mo- water moccasins. Yeah. And my mom knew um, the story about a woman who had was skiing, water skiing. And <clears throat> she skied up, like she let go. The, the boat made a turn and she skied up onto the shore of uh, one of the, like, islands over there, mm-hmm. and it was covered in water, mo- water moccasins, oh. and they killed her because they're deadly. Very <laughs> and so deadly. I was terrified that there was going to be a water moccasin, and there were times when, because I skied when I was real little, couldn't do it now to save my fucking life, but when I was real little, like four years old, I was skiing, and um, sometimes when we'd leave the dock, you could see the water moccasins. So Ugh. I have a real problem with dark water because yeah. of yeah. <laughs> the lake. So it makes me wonder, too, like if water moccasins could be a problem. But there have been sightings of it. Cryptozoologists have pointed out that species of jellyfish have been able to adapt from saltwater to freshwater mm-hmm. conditions. Hmm. And the same adaptation may have been possible for a giant cephalopod trapped in an inland lake when coastal waters receded. Yeah. So it would have to be just living deep and... You know, something marine, like that. Marine biology um, is weird. It's very really weird. weird. There's a lot of possibilities there. So yeah. I'm more inclined so many to believe in lake and river monsters totally than some others. You. And also, you know? when you're underwater, there's no fucking limit to how big you can get. There's no natural limit yeah. because you don't, gravity is not a concern, not as much yeah. of one. It's like the water pressure is going to hold you up. As it, It's weird. It's why things can get so fucking weird and odd in the ocean is because there's no fucking natural limit. There's no natural, um, there's less environmental pressure to curtail size. Yeah. In an, in underwater. So that's well, it's why. Well, like lobsters, the only reason they die is because they grow out of their largest shell. Like they can just keep growing and growing and growing. Mm-hmm. Um, as mm-hmm. long as they have a shell, it's when they can't, they're, they can't create a shell in enough time to survive it that they, yeah. but they'll just keep, if they can create that yeah. shell, they can get huge. Fuck, even catfish or grouper, like they can, you can meet a grouper that's two catfish. feet long. You can, you can meet a grouper that's the size of a fucking expedition. Like yeah. there, there's, it's, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm more inclined to believe in river monsters and ocean monsters and shit like that just because, man, we don't know the fucking half of what's yeah, down what's there. Yeah, what's going on down there. Yeah. Um, and Oklahoma has a lot of lakes and shoreline. Uh-huh. A lot of I lakes and shoreline. I think it has shoreline. more shoreline than the East Coast. And it's, and, and it's, and it's the boonies, so it's not well explored. Mm-hmm. It's not. Right. That's something a lot of people take for granted. Like, oh, how in the modern world could we have not found something? Bitch, there's so much we haven't explored. There's so much virgin forest. There's so many lakes mm-hmm. and rivers that we have not explored. So many, like, ocean depths. Like, there's a lot which of this planet. Which is why, which is why it's important to not drink and boat. Oh, God. Dry, just don't fucking do okay. it. Uh, last, we have <gasps> the Michigan Dog Man. Yep. This one? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. This is Wexford County, Michigan. The Michigan Dogman was allegedly first witnessed in 1887 when two lumberjacks saw a creature which they described as having a man's body and a dog's head. This guy is described as seven foot tall, blue eyed or amber eyed, which I love that the eye color is a detail here. <laughs> um, it's they got, a, they got a little too canine. close for comfort. Like, mm, <laughs> like, oh, he's got at, mm, gorgeous, gorgeous eyes. eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Bipedal canine-like animal with a torso of a man and a fearsome howl that sounds like a human scream. 
But again, those eyes, they're just gorgeous. <laughs> like, uh. <laughs> find you a man that's going to look at you like the Michigan dog man looks at you before he eats your soul. Um, <laughs> and your flesh. <laughs> Not in that order. No. According to legends, the Michigan Dogman appears in a 10-year cycle that falls on years ending in seven. Sightings have been reported in several locations throughout Michigan, primarily in the northwestern quadrant of the Lower Peninsula. Peninsula. In 1987, the legend of the Michigan Dogman gained popularity when disc jockey Steve Cook recorded a song about the creature and its reported sightings. The creature was unknown to most of the modern world until very late in the 20th century. However, it's said to have been stalking the area around the Manistee River since the days when the Odawa tribes lived there. That said, authentic sources for sightings made prior to 1987 have never been documented beyond the song. <laughs> but... Um, we do have other reports of the creature. In mm. 1937, in Paris, Michigan, Robert Fortney was attacked by five wild dogs and said that one of the five walked on two legs. Reports of similar creatures also came from Allen County in the 1950s and in Manistee and Cross Village in 1967. So they think that this is all the same thing. There's actually speculation that the Michigan Dogman might be the same creature as the Beast of Bray Road, too. I was going to think maybe they're related. Yeah, um, and I think that's it. Yep, so that's it. Oh, nice. That's Michigan Dogman. Thank you, thank you. I yeah. I love me some cryptids. There's some cryptids uh, for you. I hadn't heard of all of them. I'm glad that you hadn't heard of all of them, so that was good. Well, Surprising. what's cool about my story that I'm about to share after the break is that we get into evidence and some of Ooh. some very curious evidence. And I, I love Bigfoot sightings, but the only thing I love more... Uh, then a Bigfoot sighting is a weird Bigfoot sighting where you're like, okay, there's something more than just a fucking, like, primate that's undiscovered. It, it, maybe, possibly. So let's take a quick break. Yes. And when we come back, I shall share my story. Okay. Hey, it's commercial time. It, well, it's, it's kind of commercial. commercial time. It's, it's kind of, commercial time. Com commercial time. Join her. <laughs> Join our our Patreon. Be a patron. Be uh, a patron. We support appreciate us. all the support we get. We really um, do. But if you could help us. And join our Patreon. You get an extra couple of chats yeah. with us on the Discord. You guys be a member of the Discord. Because we also love to talk to you guys. Yes. And we uh, really appreciate the uh, support so that we can stay away from commercials as long as possible. Right. Other than this one. Yes. So Which is just more to... of us. So it's like just added content, yeah. really. Exactly. Patreon.com. Ghoul Intentions. There are several different tiers to choose from. Um, we're going to consolidate those soon. I say out loud so that I will do it. <laughs> uh, <but laughs> our chats are going to be on the 10th of October. 10th of October. Um, 10th of October at 12 noon Central Standard Time. Yes. And that is for every member of the Discord. And for our fat Phantasm tier is on Saturday the 17th at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. We will be having those yes. uh, those chats with our Discord what, members. What? Uh, we've also revised the Discord a little bit, so yeah. it's really running smoothly. Our admins are amazing on there, They're so, so fucking great, thank you, you to them. Oh my god, you admins are like the lifeblood. Yes. Thank you, admins. Thank you, patrons. Thank you, listeners. We appreciate all of you. Um, and enjoy the rest of the show. Bye. And we're back. 
We're back. Of course, for you guys, it's like we were never gone because we never shut That's up. True. <laughs> but we I just had, keep we, talking. In we, all fairness, we talk the entire break too. <laughs> we really do. Um, we never stop. It's it's kind it's of the just... it's it's the cornerstone of our friendship. It's why we work. Mm-hmm. We may not even be talking to each other. I gotta talk to the dogs. <laughs> you gotta keep in practice you know. in our in our line of work in our line of work. You gotta keep in yeah. practice. Um, all right, so without further ado, let's get to my story. Now, uh, I've titled it Call of the Wild, not to be mistaken for the classic book written by the raging racist. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it's just, it's too good of a title to pass up for the context. Uh, anyway, so, uh, but my chief sources are uh, a book called Voices in the Wilderness by author Ron Moorhead, who will turn out to be the protagonist of this story. Also a book published in 1976 just called Bigfoot by Al Berry or Alan Berry, who Spoilers, will have more to say. Spoilers, guess what this is about. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about small feet, not about mm-hmm. moderate feet, but about Bigfoots. Right. Uh, Also, an article by Joseph Shelton in Distinctly Montana, and a news story published by NBC4 California in January of just this last year. Uh, So there's there's an update. So uh, let's just jump right in. So now before... we do. I'm going to mention a lot of recordings of sounds in this one, and unfortunately, we they are copyright protected, so you can only listen to them uh, legally by uh, purchasing the book I mentioned, Voices in the Wilderness by Ron Moorhead. Now, it is worth a read because it's real good Wait, if you're into this kind of hold stuff. On. Mm-hmm. Well, you can and the, hear the recordings on the book? On the Kindle edition, they include track numbers, and the book itself, I uh, believe, comes with a physical audio CD and, and oh, a track okay. guide. There are actually multiple... Uh, recording multiple albums of these sounds because these guys went into the woods and did these recordings over the course of many, 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 many months. Uh, and it is a weird story. And the recordings, what what you can hear, is just scratching the surface of what these guys experienced. So let's jump into the story, and I will have some descriptions of the noises for those of you that don't have the recordings ready hand. But and some of you may have already heard these, but you may not know the story behind them. Uh, so. Uh, frequently you can find them online or like mentions of them as the Sierra Nevada Bigfoot sounds. Those are the big ones. And uh, yeah, and there's quite a few. I think there's like five or six different albums, compilations of the sounds that these guys professionally recorded in the woods for a number of months. All right, so jumping in. Have you ever heard of Bigfoot? The woman asked. Ron Moorhead blinked. As her question sunk in, the hard-nosed restaurateur turned writer turned his, uh, tried to suppress a smirk. This had to be a joke. I mean, he'd never taken his friend's wife, Sharon McDowell, for the type to entertain notions of a large, undiscovered primate roaming the wilderness of North America. Now, the infamous Patterson-Gimlin film had stirred controversy just a few years earlier in 1967, but Ron's interest in that story was negligible. A a reasonable man, he sided with the skeptics, dismissing the now iconic footage as an ingenious hoax. Bigfoot was the stuff of myth, nothing more. Sharon was too level-headed to take this kind of stuff seriously. But one look at her face told him she was genuine. Sharon McDowell had put the question to Ron, not out of idle curiosity or glib playfulness, but out of concern for her husband, Bill's, safety. It was deer season. 
1971, Bill McDowell and his buddies had gone hunting in the mountains of Sierra Nevada a few days before and ought to have been back by now. Now, it wasn't entirely out of the question for the close-knit gaggle of survivalist hunters to come home a few days later than planned, but two members of the group had come back early and were badly shaken by what they'd experienced. Though they wouldn't come right out and say it, the Johnson brothers had decamped in fear of their lives. They'd arrived on the site several days earlier than the rest, which was usual, but wound up hightailing it out of there before their friends even arrived. What compelled the Johnson brothers to beat a hasty retreat? Well, two nights in a row, they told Sharon, they'd been accosted by an ungodly ruckus. They'd huddled together in the primitive shelter of the campsite, listening wide-eyed as creatures of unknown province ransacked the surrounding area. The sounds were nothing like anything they'd ever heard before, and not only were these men experienced hunters, they were military veterans who'd served overseas for quite a few years. At dawn, puzzling evidence had left the brothers at pains to chalk down the night's mischief to bears. For example, knapsacks were rifled through, but not slashed. Objects had been dented as though struck by improvised bludgeons, not something bears do. And most unnerving of all were telltale tracks in the dirt, reminiscent of naked human feet but several times larger. Sharon McDowell listened to the Johnson brothers with mounting anxiety. Her husband, Bill, was now presumably at that very campsite with his brother Donald and their friends and had not come home. She couldn't go to the police with her fears, even if they believed her, and they most assuredly would not. Uh, what could they do? The campsite was far off the beaten path. She didn't even know where it was. It was a secret to everyone but the group who used it. So she called Ron Moorhead, a family friend uh, and writer with whom Bill served on the board of a large church in Merced, California. Incredible as the situation seemed on the face of it, Sharon's fear couldn't be denied. So at her behest, Ron Moorhead set out for the remote campsite with Bill's brother Donald, who'd come home early himself with a story his own. Now, Donald McDowell, himself every bit as rugged and practical-minded as his brother and the Johnson brothers, felt the campsite that his brother was so fond of was being stalked. See, he'd stayed there for the first time ever with the group just a few days prior, and having heard the unearthly noises and seen the remnants of another night's attack, similar to what had happened or what he would find out later had happened to the Johnson brothers, uh, he decided to get the fuck out of there the next morning and left his brother a note saying, yeah, you should probably get out of there too, but his brother didn't <laughs> come, right? Bye. So Donald and Ron Moorhead were now setting out from uh, San Joaquin Valley on what they had every reason to believe might be a rescue mission. They The trail head took several hours to reach by car. Then the uh, the steady increase in elevation as they huffed up the mountain on foot made Ron's head swim. Three miles in, the trail ceased to be a trail at all. As the men climbed 10,000 plus feet, trekking willy-nilly through canyons, ravines, creeks, pushing aside alder and scrub brush, Donald mentioned that Bill's buddies all carved out their own paths to camp every year to avoid being followed. See, preserving the campsite's remoteness was of paramount importance to the group. This was their sanctuary, so not even park rangers knew of its existence. Ron and Donald had set out in the early morning hours. They didn't reach the camp until mid to late afternoon. That's how far this off the beaten path was, like, it was. Passed down in their family, right? Uh, it was found like, in the 50s by the Johnson brothers, and and yeah. and we'll get into that a little bit. So they'd been using okay, it for okay. a number of years, but it wasn't so it hadn't been passed down the family yet. Although uh, Donald and 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 uh, 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 Bill and some others would bring their sons and daughters with them occasionally, uh, but not for long. Uh, we'll get to that. Sorry. <laughs> 
So, uh, at first blush, the campsite looked like a typical clearing on the mountainside. One had to really look to see the fire pit and the main shelter. See, in place of tents, several deadfall logs had been set upright against cabling wrapped around a brace of trees, one log looser than the rest to serve as a kind of door flap. A clutch of smaller logs made a very precarious roof. Now, fortunately, Ron and Donald found Bill and the other men in good health, though somewhat traumatized. The, my the mysterious visitors, first experienced by the Johnson brothers, had been heard by them as well, uh, just the night before Ron and Donald arrived. They'd all spent a restless night huddled in the shelter, pistols at the ready, while the creatures, whatever the hell they were, whooped and stomped 50 yards off near the fire pit. The noises, Bill insisted, defied explanation. No known creature had the range for these vocalizations, and damned if some of the sounds didn't resemble human language. So aggressive was the clamor, in fact, which included not only voices, but someone beating relentlessly on tree trunks with a log or something to the effect, the men felt that at any moment something would come caterwauling through the shelter walls and snatch them away into the darkness. An 18-inch, five-toed, barefoot impression found in the mud nearby the next morning did little to quell their fears. Now, with precious few hours of daylight left, the men were eager to leave. Ron, exhausted from the hike, I mean, he'd just fucking gotten there <laughs> after hacking all day, was given a horse to ride down. Free to relax and survey the unspoiled wilderness as the group made their way back to civilization, Ron reflected on his time as a private pilot, and specifically on the bird's eye view often afforded him of virgin forests across North America. There was and is quite a bit more unexplored land out there than people tend to realize. He'd certainly never thought of it before blustering up the mountain that morning. Between that simple fact and the fear in these men's eyes as they raced to beat nightfall, perhaps, he pondered, Bigfoot wasn't just the stuff of myth. Now, getting back to the Johnson brothers. Warren and Lewis Johnson were more or less the site's caretakers. They'd discovered it back in the 50s and had gone hunting there for years, glad to get away from the hustle and bustle of civilization when the weather permitted. Gradually, they introduced friends like Bill and Donald and their friends to this secret piece of paradise. Now, the Johnsons in this year in 1971 were the first to arrive to uh, uh, assess and repair the damage inevitably caused by bears in the off-season. On the first night there, Lewis and Warren finished their dinner and withdrew into the Hutchie, which was Warren's nickname for the primitive shelter. As they settled down, a terrible crashing noise erupted from outside. Some large animal was wrecking their stove at the opposite end of the camp. Warren's first thought was bear. He'd seen a large specimen skulking in the woods nearby the year prior, so determined to scare it off, he grabbed a flashlight and made for the log door. Before he could step out, however, another sound pierced through the cacophony, giving him second thoughts. He later described the noise to Ron as, quote, deep guttural grunts, snarls, and what sounded like teeth popping together. There was also the sound of chest beating, end quote. As he and Lewis listened in astonishment, they grew convinced it wasn't one creature, but two a pair in some kind of violent disagreement. Warren felt in hindsight one of the creatures must have burned itself on a teapot left cooling on the stove. This awful commotion <laughs> went on for half an hour, right? You see them like, motherfucker! <laughs> the God other one being it, like, God damn it, Charles, I told you not to touch shit! And that's just the, what they're hearing is this argument between Bigfoot's going, I, so we, we are looking, we are not touching! It's like, it's um, hot, it's, it's burning. <laughs> what do you mean? How, like, if they don't start fires... How do they know what hot feels like? Mm-hmm. Or if they, or if they don't see like you know if they have no concept of a stove where if it's right. no longer lit they wouldn't know it's hot by just looking at it you wouldn't right. think so. But even then, how do you explain hot if it's not something you would feel? Right, right, right. I mean, yeah, 
I don't know. I don't know. It's weird. So, so it makes sense that they would touch. It's, I, I think it was a good uh, deduction on Warren's part that that one of them had touched that teapot, and that's what started the. the... Even more importantly, uh, don't go the fuck out there. <laughs> well, yeah, just wait. <laughs> yeah. Now, only after silence had fallen, this went on for about half an hour. Only after silence had fallen for some time did the men dare poke their heads out of the shelter. Pots and pans lay scattered all over the place. Spam rations were missing. Two human like footprints were splayed out in the mud over 18 inches in length. Now, having spent nearly half their. Uh, <laughs> although I will say, I mean, uh, hit me up on Tinder. Um, <laughs> Because <laughs> you know what they say about guys with big feet, big shoes. Having spent nearly half their adult lives in the North American wilderness, the Johnson brothers had never taken the idea of Bigfoot seriously. But now they tied the shelter door shut with a thick nylon rope, waited out a sleepless night, took copious notes of the experience to rule out the possibility of it being a hallucination of some kind, and snapped photos of the footprints the next morning. Unsurprisingly, they shot furtive glances over their shoulders all the next day while hiking. <laughs> Reluctant... What if you found something in there? What if you bought, did a picture over your shoulder, then looked at it, and it was like, Meh! I guess they wouldn't have in the 50s. Right, right. They, you, they, Unless, yeah. But, but yeah, um... Well, this was the 70s at this point, but still. Oh, the 70s. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, Unless they did like, um, um, what's the instant? The Polaroid, right? Oh, the Polaroids, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great. Uh, <laughs> which is not a great way. It's, it gives up your cover no. every time. Yeah. Uh, reluctant but deeply curious, they decided to give it another night before heading home. Presumably whatever they were dealing with wasn't impervious to gunfire, and they both had rifles and handguns, so what the fuck? They hatched a plan. They fried up some bacon and left a stack of empty cans on the skillet to alert them if the bait was touched that night. Leaving the shelter door open so they could rush outside with their flashlights and get a decent look at, at the creatures, Juan and Lewis settled in for a long stakeout, and indeed, in the wee hours, the skillet cans clattered to the ground. The brothers burst from the shelter, flashlights at the ready, only to catch a fleeting glimpse of some shadowy, hulking figure crashing uh, through the alders near a spring. Massive dimensions aside, no known animal could move that fast. It just wasn't mm -hmm. possible. And they said, like, it moved like a ghost. The Johnsons returned to the with shelter. With the bacon. <laughs> with the bacon, yeah. The bacon yeah, was gone. They'd right. also left out a thing of punch, uh, and the punch <laughs> thing was undisturbed. It was nice. They're like, hey, would you need a drink too? Here's some punch, some right. fruit punch like, they'd made. punch. Give me that bacon. <laughs> the Johnsons returned to the shelter, unnerved but a little disappointed. Five minutes later, the previous night's brouhaha came back with a vengeance. Snarling, chest pounding, tree thumping, whooping, teeth clattering, Warren and Lewis listened in stark terror, ready at any moment for something to come through the walls of the Hutchie for them. At dawn, the seasoned hunters secured camp, said fuck it, and went home, hoping to see Bill and the others along the way to dissuade them from uh, the year's hunting trip, but they had no such luck. When Sharon called their wives a few days after Bill was supposed to be home, she was shocked to hear the brother's story. Around that time, Donald also showed up, confirming what the Johnsons had experienced and cementing uh, Sharon's fears. Thus, she called Ron Moorhead, who was now, a day later, riding down the mountainside with Bill McDowell and the gang on a horse named Eagle, contemplating the possibility of Bigfoot being real. And what a weird life. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, what makes this story atypical for Bigfoot encounters is what happens next. The men returned to camp multiple times over the next few months with professional recording equipment and succeeded in capturing the sounds on tape multiple times. 
Now, when not an avid hunter, Warren Johnson was a successful business executive deeply concerned with protecting his professional reputation for reasons that should be obvious. Spooked as he was by what he and his brother Lewis, and now the other members of the group, had experienced at the campsite, he felt an investigation by experts was in order. The tapes were not evidence in and of themselves. He realized the vocalizations could easily be some kind of hoax from the perspective of an outsider. For this reason, he did not seek publicity, opting instead to reach out under the radar and, uh by his own dime to people he thought might be sympathetic to the idea of Bigfoot. He wrote a long and detailed letter of the experience to Dr. Ivan T. Sanderson, founder of the Society for the Investigation of the Unexplained, who took an interest. Sanderson, in turn, enlisted the help of a uh, well-heeled Bigfoot researcher, Peter Byrne, and reporter, Alan Barry. Now, Alan Barry made the trip to Modesto, interviewed the hunters separately uh, multiple times, listened to the recordings himself, and grew convinced the matter was worth pursuing, if only to uncover what to him was probably a fascinating hoax on par with the Patterson-Gimlin film. Mind you, the Patterson-Gimlin film uh, was so convincing that a lot of people still believe it's real. In fact, it may be, but like the idea that people were drawn to it going like, if this is a hoax, it's a good one, and I want to figure out how they did it. And that was kind of what was driving Alan Barry. He didn't really believe in Bigfoot or, or believe in most Bigfoot foot sightings so but here he was like whatever these sounds are i want to know how they did them so i'm gonna i'm yeah. gonna i'm gonna go in now by now it was winter the secret campsite was not accessible uh but once the snow melted in the high country warren told alan he was welcome to join them because they were going back whether what he heard on the tapes came from some bipedal primate with the vocal amplitude of an 800 pound gorilla or just a group of clever hucksters playing him for a fool, Alan Barry was determined to find out. I mean, he was a reporter. This is what he did. Ron Moorhead, the author of the book, came along too, eager as the rest of them for some kind of confirmation. Now, this would be his first extended wilderness retreat. He writes beautifully of the harrowing experience. Suffice it to say, on several occasions, the possibility of Bigfoot lurking in ambush turned out to be the least of his worries, but I'll, I'll reserve that for the book. Like, oh my God. <laughs> He almost falls off a fucking cliff. Like the, his mule, like nearly kills him. Like it's insane. Um, once the men made camp, however, the creatures returned as if on cue. They visited nightly. The vocalizations seeming to run through an astonishing range of emotional color, and you can hear this on the recordings. It's fucking uncanny. Once the barrage slackened, the men would nestle into their sleeping bags and try to catch a few hours of troubled sleep. New to the experience, of course, Ron would lay awake each night. He says at some point they would often return during the night stillness. I would hear pine needles crunching just outside. The sound was like a two-legged elephant sneaking through the woods. <laughs> there was heavy breathing, coming from the same area, just a few feet away from the shelter. Now, one night, Ron and Warren were alone in the shelter when the creatures started their uh, uh, rapid chattering. One of them sounded uncomfortably close. The men had set up camera traps all around camp, but to no avail. Perhaps, Ron reasoned, if they took this opportunity to creep from the shelter with uh, cameras ready, they might capture something on film. Now, at the count of three, he and Warren burst from the hutchie, cameras ready to pop. They expected to see something flitting away through the brush at full bore, but nothing. Where the chattering sound had been not a second earlier, the forest was empty and deathly quiet. Determined the they hiked of Bigfoot. Determined they hike up they hiked up the ridge, convinced the creature must be hiding behind one of the massive cedars up ahead. Then, thirty feet from the shelter, at exactly the same moment, Ron and Warren froze, unable to move. Out of nowhere, something had stopped them dead in their tracks. 
It wasn't fear, Ron writes. This may sound crazy, but it seemed like we were being blocked by a force field. And at some point, Warren turns to him and is like, we need to get the fuck out of here <laughs> or back to, back to the shelter. Um, and the thing is, at one time or another, every member of the group felt something similar to this sensation in connection with these nightly visitors. So Ron, in the book, brings up the possibility of infrasound, sound below the level of human hearing. Now, low frequencies have a clinically observable effect on human beings. Nazi propaganda engineers, you may not know, used these frequencies to stir up emotion in the crowds gathered to see Hitler. Larger animals like whales and elephants use infrasound to communicate with each other, but even tigers can use infrasound to temporarily stun their prey, according to the Fauna Communications Research Group. Moorhead ponders whether the difficulty of seeing a Bigfoot, let alone collecting evidence of one, can be traced back to the creature's use of infrasound as some kind of defense mechanism. Oddly enough, uh, on more than one occasion, as the men sat around the campfire, often in broad daylight, they would suddenly hear, coming through the forest from all directions, what sounded like a giant tuning fork being struck, though they were never able to find the source. Vocalizations were only the half of it. One night, the men were convinced the creatures had unmoored some storage barrels from the trees and were rolling them down the ravine. A quick glance outside the shelter, however, proved otherwise. The barrels were perfectly intact. So what the fuck was making such a specific noise? A strange clicking sound, not unlike castanets, uh, was heard flitting about the campsite one night. The men listened inside the shelter, puzzled, then outright baffled when the clicking sound seemed to enter the closed shelter and echo through the dark between them. When some of them grabbed a flashlight and shined it in the direction of what they thought had to be an intruder, there was nothing there and the noise stopped. Then it would start again, and then they'd throw the lights on, and it would stop. And this went on and on and on. The group began to feel like they were all losing their goddamn minds. Making things even weirder, this particular sound, the clicking, followed Moorhead home. Months later, he heard it clear as day one afternoon while irrigating his property. Between 1971 and 1972, Ron and the others visited the campsite repeatedly, trying to capture evidence to support the tape recordings, of which there were many. Alas, the culprits proved one step ahead of them at every turn. The frustration, uh, this frustrated them beyond endurance. As Ron says, how could an animal living in the forest be so attuned to human tricks? Camera traps set up in the direction by which the creatures reg regularly seemed to enter the site yielded nothing but broken cameras. When the men <laughs> hid behind a clever blind one occasion, waiting to snap a picture through a slit in, in, the, in the veil uh, after the evening's concert of grunts and whoops began, Everything ground to a sudden halt the moment the camera was poked through and started up immediately when they pulled it back in. Huh. The creatures seemed to watch their every move. They seemed especially fascinated by the men's hunting practices. Dressed deer carcasses left hanging on several occasions were found to have a ring of telltale footprints underneath, um, but otherwise not to be, have been fucked with. A stash of tainted lunch meat went missing and was found buried the next day, a pan of jello left to cool in the snow was consumed. <laughs> I mean, the list goes on and on. But perhaps most fascinating is the fact that as the nightly visits continued, the men grew emboldened to try and speak or call out and imitate what they were hearing. The creatures seemed to respond in kind when they did this. You can hear on, uh, several instances of this on the recordings. The creatures appear to be ramping up the difficulty of the sounds, like they're playing some kind of weird game of Simon Says and winning. <laughs> At one point, responding to a phonetic warbling screech in the distance, one of the men can be heard to say, well, that's a hard act to follow. <laughs> <laughs> 
sense of humor about it. Oh, yeah. I mean, now, Alan Barry was definitely the odd man out of the group, not really a believer. A hardened Vietnam vet, he had no interest in hunting, so he often stayed behind at camp during the day while the others went out looking for deer. Ron believes that Al felt sure one of them was behind this whole thing. Al admitted to him later that he went through some of their knapsacks when by himself looking for evidence of a hoax. In his own book on the incident, 1976's Bigfoot, Al even quips that the story would have been much better if he could have proved the whole thing was bullshit. Taunting a bunch of experienced marksmen who never left the shelter without a loaded pistol in their hand? What asshole could pull off <laughs> such a subtle and dangerous deception? That's the story he wanted, and it wasn't there. As it was, the story went nowhere. The nightly visits continued, but only anecdotal evidence piled up. No photographs and only a handful of uh, cast prints. The recordings were only a trace, and tragically... Uh, um, the recordings are the only trace, and tragically, a lot of these were lost in a house fire several years later. What does survive and can be heard is good quality, but uh, and was comes from the copies Ron made for other members of the group, but it still represents only a faction of what he says they got. And they are worth a listen. Some of the strange vocalizations have since become known as the samurai sounds, due to their, at times, uncanny resemblance to the expressive style favored in old Kurosawa films like Seven Samurai. And, mm. I, you know, it's it's... It that's, God, sounds vaguely racist, but it's it's hard as a Westerner to hear some of these vocalizations and not think that sounds like someone doing an impression <laughs> of what they think a samurai sounds like based on this film. It's really weird. Now, not all of them. Um, um, you know, they're not all like that. They only pop up every now and again. Uh, but it's really unsettling. It's really unsettling, yeah. right? Uh, sadly, several years later, the campsite was discovered by park rangers and dismantled. The men were expressly forbidden to ever return because it was illegal their being there. Uh, and the rough start to their friendship notwithstanding, uh, Moorhead and Al Berry grew close over the years, often lecturing together on the state of Bigfoot research and telling the S Sierra Nevada story. Now, in recounting one particular experience uh, in his book, Berry says, as dusk became dark night, something approached camp from a ridge above, wrapping on wood or rocks as it came, and when it arrived, two voices that I could discern started vocalizing, and the sounds carried through the trees as I have never heard human voices carry ever before or since. And it whistled, a clear, beautiful whistle like a bird might make between its kind, and at one point, back and forth with us. The encounter went on for nearly an hour and a half, and another followed on the second night, and there were other encounters I can attest to later that season. I wasn't a novice investigator of facts, he says, but I came home stumped, basically with nothing to write about until the story unraveled by itself. Experts have studied the audio ad nauseum. Many claim that human vocal cords cannot produce the noises heard. Retired naval officer turned cryptolinguist Scott Nelson says the recordings changed his life. Quote, it took me out of my paradigm. He remains convinced the noises represent an intelligent language spoken by a family of humanoid beings as yet undiscovered. Alan Berry sadly died in uh, 2012 at the age of 71. Moorhead remembers him fondly in the opening pages of his book. Now, while there may be no real connection between this story and what I'm about to tell you, it's worth mentioning, I think, for reasons uh, that should become clear as I proceed. Doing research on this story... And mind you, the exact location of the camp is not known by anyone except the authors of the book. So it's, I don't know where, what mountain it's on. I don't know where it yeah. is. And it was like a hike that if you tried was, to get there I mean, without it, them, you it, would be lost. Yeah. 
impossible to discover on your own except by accident and if you had the, an entire day or two to find it because it would like it from the road from where you could park it took all goddamn day to get there yeah. Um, and there was no trail because these men would make their own trail. So they were the so, only ones so, going. So there wasn't a trail. They would all come from separate directions so they wouldn't leave a trail because they didn't want people to find it. Now, uh, so in researching this, I came across a fascinating story that I thought was worth mentioning, if only because, well, you'll see. In October of 2019, two young men hiking the Sierra Nevada discovered a human skeleton lying as if in state, its arms folded peacefully across its chest. Subsequent investigations revealed the remains to be those of Gichi Matsumura, a Japanese internment camp detainee who died in 1945 while hiking with several other escaped prisoners. He succumbed to the elements during a freak summer snowstorm, having stopped to paint a watercolor while the other men, a group of fishermen, proceeded to a nearby lake. By the time his body was found and buried in the mountains a month later, the story was overshadowed by America having dropped a bomb on Hiroshima. Matsumura was one of more than 1,800 detainees to die in 10 prison camps across the West, though it's one of the more unusual deaths. While his burial in the mountains was well known among members of the camp and his family, the story faded over time and its location was lost to memory. It was by accident on October 7th that Tyler Hoffer and a friend stumbled upon the remains on their way to the top of Mount Williamson. The two were off course on a crude route through the jumble of granite boulders and a basin of lakes when Hoffer looked down and saw what looked like a bone. Hoffer and Brandon Fullen, his friend, moved the rocks and found an intact skeleton with a belt around its waist and leather shoes on the feet. The arms appeared to be crossed over the chest. By the time officials retrieved the bones by helicopter, they had a rough idea of who it might be. Now, while his story was little known, it and got- they found these bones, just really quickly, I can't help you. They found these bones on what day? On, uh, oh shit, wait, did I say- Ah, <laughs> no! What the <laughs> fuck, Jamie? You gave me your power. I don't want it. You did it. October 7th. <laughs> just last year. Just last, last year. year. Last wow. year. Last year. Or October uh, 2019, rather. So, yeah, that is just last yeah. year. Um, yeah, that's last year. Crazy, this, crazy. Just, this past year has taken 17 years <laughs> to get through. That's right. right and that's why right. it seems longer. But no, uh, um, so we're recording this actually on the 6th, but when it But plays, it should it come out on the 7th. Oh, my God. Yeah. Now, while, <laughs> now, while Matsumura's story is little known, it got renewed attention when the Manazar, uh, uh, sorry, Manzanar Fishing Club documentary film came out in 2012. Director Kori Shirozaki told the story about intrepid prisoners who would escape from the camp at night and slip into the mountains to fish for trout, sometimes for weeks at a time. While a segment of the film centered on Matsumura's death didn't make the final cut, Shiozaki often addressed the tragedy at screenings. In the final year of the war, the guard towers were no longer manned with armed soldiers and people were free to leave the camp. The Matsumuras, like many others, had no home or businesses to return to, so they remained behind. When a group of fishermen planned to hike to the chain of lakes in uh, Williamson Bowl, Matsumura insisted on tagging along. The trip leader didn't want Matsumura, who was 46 at the time, to join them because he was older and not in great physical shape. I mean, he'd been in these camps for a while now. But he eventually relented, Shiozaki said. The group of six to ten men headed into the Sierra Nevada on July 29, 1945. At some point in the demanding trek, Matsumura stopped to paint a watercolor and said he would catch up later. A freak snowstorm blew in, and the fishermen retreated to a cave. When the weather cleared, they searched fruitlessly for Matsumura. Three later search parties from the camp also failed to find him. During that period, his wife, Ito, worried so much that her hair turned the color of snow, according to Kazu, who was 10 at the time. It was his, grand, uh, mm. it was his daughter. I felt sorry for my mom, she said uh, to the National Park Service in an interview shortly after his remains were found uh, a second time. 
She had black hair, and it turned white all of a sudden. Matsumura's decomposing remains were found a month later by hikers from the nearby town of Independence. Members from the camp then hiked back up to bury him in, the mountainside, in a mountainside grave under a sheet his wife provided, according to park services. Atop the granite stones placed on his body was a granite column with a paper note attached to mark the site. In Japanese characters, it gave his name, age, and said, rest in peace. The burial party brought back clippings of his hair and fingernails, a Buddhist tradition when a body can't be returned, um, rather than reopen an old wound in her family's past, the finding has awakened interest in learning more about their story and time in the camp and sharing it with nephews and nieces, Lori Matsumura said, who's his granddaughter. Uh, her father never talked about the experience, uh, and she now regrets not pressing him for more information. Like many who endured the hardship and humiliation of one of the darkest chapters in U.S. history, um... Uh, history when more than 110,000 Japanese were imprisoned because fear they would remain loyal to their ancestral homeland, uh, Masaru Matsumura seemed bitter and rarely spoke of camp, Lori Matsumura said. He had been close to graduating from high school when his family went to uh, Manzanar. After his father's death, Masaru Matsumura had to support his mother and three siblings when they returned to Santa Monica. He had to take a job as a gardener, and his father, uh, as his father had done. Uh, Ito Matsumura was 102 when she died in, 20, in uh, 2005. 20, is that how we say it? 2005? 2005. Thank you. She was 102 years old. His wife wow. was 102 years old when she died. Um, she was buried with a lock of her husband's hair and his name. On her gravestone, most of what local Matsu, uh, of Lori, most of what Lori Matsumuri knows of the camp came from her grandmother and an aunt who lived across the street from the little home where she grew up in Santa Monica. Now that her curiosity has been sparked, Lori Matsumura has no one to ask about their experiences in camp or the impact of her grandfather's death on the family. Her father died last summer at the age of 94, the last of his generation. I wished I would have dug up, a, dug a little deeper, and found out more stories from my dad. She said he didn't talk about it much. I wished I could have asked more questions. Now, what I find fascinating about that story, which is just more telling in its own right, and so I'm glad I found it in connection with this while trying to do research on on strange things happening in the in the area, but I, I come back, and this is a delicate thing, so I, I, I come back to the idea that when Westerners hear these sounds, uh, a lot of them sound, it's called the samurai sounds now, some of them are, and there were a number of these prisoners that would escape to go camping in the Sierra Nevada from Manzanar. Mm -hmm. um, and it just, I mean, while and while this is 1971, years and years and years and years after that, there is the possibility of, have you ever heard of the, the second lieutenant in the Japanese military? Um, his name was Hiro, uh, uh, um, oh shit, hang on, I had it down. The one that just um, kept... He was never Hiro Onada. To... Onada. Yeah. Well, he he went. Yeah. He fled into a mountain in the Philippines, and with his regiment there, and they stayed fighting. They actually would terrorize the locals, and often got into shootouts with the local police for decades until mm -hmm. he finally, in the seventies, surrendered. What? What if these sounds? I mean, what if these? What the men uh, at this campsite were experiencing were a group of Japanese detainees who had escaped into the mountains and were simply living off, li living in the wild. It's mm -hmm. a possibility. Now, I don't know because we don't know where the campsite was. I don't know how far it, it would have been, but it's a fascinating right. story. And I'd never heard of, of anyone mm -hmm. escaping the detainee camps on the regular to go camping. And if you don't know anything about those Japanese internment camps, concentration camps, that's what they mm -hmm. were, mm -hmm. look it up. 
because it's terrible. And that is it was, the same I mean, thing that we're doing at the border right now. Yeah. So it's, it's unimaginable. both horrible and horrifying and dehumanizing. And, and we should be better than that. So I don't. We, always it, we been absolutely. Absolutely. And these poor people, like they were just, you know, they, they just had the, the, the bad they were luck. Americans. Of, they yeah, were Americans. They were Americans. Many of them first generation Americans, too. Like not they hadn't yeah. just come here. You know, they weren't spies. Um we, you know, America really fucked them over. I, which is kind of my long, uh, my my in my movie, um, mm. the sounds that these men heard could very well have been, possibly, a group of internment camp escapees who just never went back to civilization, and twenty yeah. years on, less than twenty years on, were still in the forest surviving as best they could, and um, like like. Uh, Hiro Onara did for over 30 fucking years in the wilds of the Philippines, surviving yeah. in the fucking wilds because he would not surrender. He was like he was waiting for orders. Um, yeah. So what if we have a similar story like that here at home? What if it's not Bigfoot at all? Or or what if, you know, I mean, I, there's a school of thought. I hadn't said that word in a while uh -huh. or that phrase in a while. But there's a school of thought that chalks down Bigfoot sightings to feral humans that have simply learned to live off the grid for generations and have maybe even mm -hmm. developed their own language in the process and maybe have gotten inbred or whatever. I mean, go into that territory if you want, but I don't think it's necessary. But what if that's what it is? I mean, because the yeah. idea that, um, you know, people, one of the huge... Arguments against the existence of Bigfoot. Well, why haven't we found remains? Well, if you know, what if they bury their dead? Who's digging? Mm -hmm. Who's digging looking for remains in the forests? You know, I'm like, yeah. not not anyone I'm aware of. Uh, not all over the place anyway. So who's to say it's not well hidden? I mean, we can't. It took them 30 years for park rangers just to find this fucking campsite set up by a couple of white dudes. So yeah. it, there's a lot. There's a lot going on in the forests. It doesn't. And have it was to... a really well, like well set up camp it wasn't just like we come here and we've cleared out some trees and stuff like they had stumps no, where people it was could sit. they could they could they live the there stove. for they would live there for yeah. weeks at a time yeah um, they, i mean it was really it yeah was a cool and it's site. so i wonder you know and what if what in if some movie, of the vocalizations they were hearing were in fact japanese uh, yeah. people talking to each other i love you know? that idea i feel like it's it's in my movie it's a combination right mm, so there mm. are there's more than what you can know out there. So oh, they're so running into more. more things, more than what can be expected, you know. Why not a ghost, too? You know, right. why not be the right. ghosts and some um, people living off the land and Bigfoot? And they, you know, they my, all know about each other, so they're in staying In my away. movie, these, these poor, poor embattled Japanese internment camp, uh, concentration camp victims mm -hmm. that managed to escape, escaped into the forest, Met with a tribe of Sasquatch who took pity on okay. them and have now okay. like are, are now like and have just kind of been and maybe had lived in harmony with them for a number of years. I like that. <laughs> yeah. And they and, and they take and they take great pride in being like and maybe maybe that's why the big feats the Sasquatch were emboldened to go into a camp because they're like you know they had humans with them to kind of act as guides. Right. Maybe. Maybe it's in my movie. I mean, that's there's this is completely unscientific, <laughs> but in my but movie. But I like a little bit of everything. Why not? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, let's 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 throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. But I think it's fascinating. The the recordings. Yeah. I'm inclined to believe to agree with people that say that they can't, they couldn't have been made exclusively by humans. Some of the sounds right. are within the range of most people, but not 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 the bulk of them. Some of them are clearly sounds that are coming from something that is not human, at least to my ears. Yeah. 
So I don't know. Uh, I don't know. But that, that in, in so many words, is the story of the Sierra Ooh. Nevada Bigfoot recordings. So good. So good, so. and you can, and they go over it quite a bit on the missing. They do. Um, there's a whole, there's a whole segment on it of the recent uh-huh. documentary film made about the missing 411 that I believe uh, David Politis' son directed. Amazon. Yeah, it's on yeah. Amazon. It's good. It's worth a watch. It's beautifully produced. If for no other reason, and if you, you don't buy the story, some of those like sounds too, uh-huh, and uh-huh, that, uh-huh. and that, yeah. and that, yeah, part of it. It's really, that's a really good documentary. Awesome. Thank really you, awesome. Michael. You are welcome. Thank you for Got letting it. me tell that story. I've been wanting to do it for a while. I'm glad you did. Good way to start out October. I felt. That's right. Start with cryptids and we'll go on to what's next week, which will be a surprise (laughs) to you, not to us. We already know what it is. Uh, (laughs) Oh, good. Not a surprise for everyone. (laughs) Thank you guys so much. Thank you to our patrons as usual. Um, And stay safe. Stay sane. And remember, it's okay okay to sleep with with the lights lights on. on. Ooh, and send us your cryptid stories.